First, let me welcome you to the Cato Institute. I'm uh, Mark Calabria. I'm our Director of Financial Regulation Studies here, uh, and I will serve for your hostess for the evening, uh, for your host for the evening. Uh, boy, we haven't even gotten the drinks yet, so, um, or at least uh, the rest of you haven't. Uh, for those of you who don't know Cato, uh, or those of you who do know Cato, we don't shy away from controversy. We don't shy away from tough issues. Uh, I've worked on a lot of issues in uh, Washington in my time. I was actually telling somebody earlier, I worked on the issues trying to resolve Fannie and Freddie, for instance. You could imagine that was quite controversial. Um, but it's hard for me to think of two issues that are tougher that I've worked on uh, than the relationship of tribal governments to the federal government and, on the other hand, the appropriate regulatory response to short-term, high-cost consumer lending. Uh, these two issues generate a tremendous amount of controversy on their own, so you could just imagine combining the two, the amount of controversy that they generate. Uh, as mentioned, they've both been of long interest to me during my time on the Senate Banking Committee. Uh, I managed to find myself involved in both, uh, worked on multiple reauthorizations of the Native American Housing Assistance and Self-Determination Act. Uh, and the reason I bring that up is not to talk about myself. The reason I bring that up is to talk about a background to everything we're going to talk about today, which is Working on that uh, reauthorization of those acts, I had opportunities to visit a number of tribal areas around the country. And I really do emphasize, I don't think that you actually go to tribal areas can you really see what it's like. Uh, and all too often, Washington makes a lot of decisions in a bubble. Uh, I certainly remind myself every day I live in the bubble of Washington. And it's incredibly important to go out and see tribal areas and see what tribal communities are dealing with. Uh, and it really enlightened me uh, working on those issues a number of years ago. Uh, so again, we're not really going to talk about that uh, too much today. That's going to be the underlying sort of assumptions we start with. But again, I want to emphasize uh, that's an important driver of everything we do talk about. I think it's also fair to admit that Washington's relationship with the tribes has not always been an honest one, not always been a balanced one. Uh, and I think considerable suspicion of federal motives rightly remains. Uh, and I think that's going to be part of any conversation. Um, and while Cato does not associate with any political party, uh, I take great pride in the fact that the uh, small L libertarians have long supported self-determination. In fact, uh, I like to remind uh, folks that when one of the most prominent advocates of self-determination, Russell Means, decided to enter national politics, he chose a libertarian party. Uh, and we have a long history with that here, Cato. But of course, we are interested in expanding self-determination to all Americans, including those looking for high-cost credit. The movie, which we will shortly see, touches upon both sides of this discussion. We're going to hear from tribal leaders. We're going to hear from regulators. We're going to hear from consumers. Uh, also note, we're going to hear from the filmmakers after I'm done. Uh, Chuck Banner and Ben Carswell are here. Chuck is going to talk a little bit about the film before we get started. Uh, after, as the film provides the human element of these issues, we're going to have a very brief panel afterwards, about 20 minutes of moderated discussion between the panelists with about 10 minutes uh, of Q&A, and then we're going to go out and have a, that drink I promised you. Uh, let me talk, just introduce our panel real quickly, although they're not going to take the stage until the movie is done. Our panel consists of uh, Gary Davis, President and CEO of the National Center for American Indian Enterprise Development, uh, Bill Isaac, who's former chair of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, uh, and Chico Harlan, who covers personal economics for the Washington Post. Uh, as I mentioned, again, uh, we were going to have a reception afterwards. I'll also mention copies of the DVD are out front, so you can get one on your way out. They are free. So certainly don't hold back and take one. Uh, and with that, I'm going to turn it over to Chuck Banner, one of the filmmakers, to tell us a little bit about the film before we get started. Thank you. Hello. Thank you, Mark. 
um, for the work helping to put this together here at the Cato, um, everything you've done to host it, um, for being here tonight in Washington, D.C. Um, and all of you here had a chance to be by Res D.C. today, and it was interesting to, to attend that and, and see all that's going on. And this is clearly addressing some key issues that I know um, you're all addressing in your work here this week. Um, I had a privilege of working with the Native American community for almost three decades, um, living in Taos, New Mexico from like 1972 to 1990. Uh, in fact, the first time I worked with a camera was doing a documentary on Yellow Thunder Camp in the Black Hills of South Dakota in 1981. I didn't know I was going to be a documentarian, but that's um, the work that was thrust upon me. Um, you brought up Russell Means. It was really the first work I had done in Native in Indian Country. Was working with with American Indian Movement, working with Russ and and John Trudell and different people um, back in the 60s and 70s. And what I really started to learn in my experience was it was the fun stuff and the really meaningful stuff was working with the elders when you'd sit down with the camera and interview the grandmas and grandpas. And that's when the real rubber hit the road um, and a lot of meaningful stuff was said. Um, they had a lot of stories to tell and a lot of history and no one was listening. And so we, I learned a lot and unfortunately I learned a lot more than I was able to get out to other people. Um, doing documentaries and getting things done on Indian country is, was not easy for me. Um, but I learned it was part of my life's work, helping people tell stories, people that didn't have access, um, for those who weren't represented. And that's why, call me crazy, but it's why I left New Mexico. Um, my home for two decades moved to Los Angeles to really get more experience in the, in the entertainment industry. Um, but it was really about helping indigenous communities. It's what our company, Earthstream Media, is about. You've got the mainstream, you got the Earthstream. Um, it's really about getting those stories out there and, you know, with a little bent towards the environment and water, which I'm sure will be something we'll all have a lot to say about over the next two decades. Um, but I will not digress. Um, but getting the stories about, that's... That's what this story, An Unlikely Solution, as it's called, is about. Um, the film explores the intersection of Native American e-commerce, which is about tribes and unrepresented tribes, remote tribes, people that don't have access to mainstream economy, um, through e-commerce and installment lending, intersecting unlikely, in an unlikely fashion, with American consumers across the country. Um, the numbers are in the film, but there are a lot of them. There's a lot of tribes and a lot of tribal people that need help. There's a lot of consumers that need help. This film is about the, the nexus and the intersection of those two worlds coming together um, and all that's involved. It's a unique partnership. It's created an innovative economic development lifeline for tribal governments while providing essential services for consumers that need their help. Um, and consumers that, uh, I must say, and I, I learned a lot of, that, that don't really get a lot of help otherwise. Um, we call it an unlikely, it was really an unlikely partnership. It's really, an un, what it really is, is not a partnership, it's a solution. It's really two different groups of people working on their own, their own servicing their own needs, and therefore helping each other solve 
Um, so that's where the title comes from. We traveled across the country. We were in Oklahoma, we were in Texas, we were in Los Angeles, we filmed up in Michigan. Um, we've, we've been up in Upper, Upper Lake, which is up in Northern California. Um, and we interviewed, we interviewed consumers and we interviewed, uh, we, you know, to get the perspective of officials, tribal leaders, the consumers, and, and the people. Um, I say we, my partner Ben, who's up there, I've worked with Ben for almost 20 years. Um, and actually, he, he went along with me on my first, um, when we went and documented the 20th anniversary of Wounded Knee, was his first experience behind a camera, which was a bit of an eye-opener for him on Pine Ridge. Um, thanks to Sherry, uh, the, all the tribal persons, the tribal chairpersons from Sherry from Habemetal Pomo of Upper Lake, John Shotton of Oto, Missouri, James Williams of Blackview Desire, Band of Upper Lake Chippewa. They're, they and their communities, they open it, they trusted us to tell their story. And we'll see how you like it. Um, we take it, we take it very seriously, and, and I hope you see it in the film. Before we jump in, I want to acknowledge a friend of mine who, in production, one-time friend who I think of particularly, obviously, in this kind of project, someone who Ben and I worked with in training Native youth in Indian country is Floyd Redcrow Westerman. Um, you may know him as Chief Ten Bears in Dance of the Wolves or Uncle Ray on Walker, Texas Ranger. Um, those of you that know him for other things, I won't go into that. Anyway, Floyd was a dear friend and a mentor um, when we started this project. Ben and I, at a certain point, had to dig down kind of deep and say, is this really the same message? Is this what I got into in the 70s and the 80s? Um, you know, what would Floyd think? And it is. It's about sovereignty, what it really gets down to. Once you, once you understand this, it's the same thing that tribes have been fighting for, and the grandmas and the grandpas, and it's their right to exist, and their inalienable rights as a nation to nation in existence on this continent. Um, and another thing I learned, it's one thing I observed that always kind of stuck with me, is those that say don't know, and those that know don't say. Um, and I think it took me a long time to kind of understand that, but it's about the doing. And it's about the execution. And I think that's what you'll see in this film, that people are doing what they do. And in the meantime, outside of it, particularly in this kind of topic, in the news and in media, a lot of people who speak and talk and say a lot of things, they don't really know what's going on. They speak more than I think they doth understand. And hopefully this film looks at the balance and kind of changes the scale a little bit. So with that in mind, ladies and gentlemen, an unlikely solution. went to two of the tribal areas mentioned in California, and I was struck by, for instance, going to Upper Lake, how long, you know, you would think you're Northern California, you've got to be close to Sacramento, San Francisco. And so to me, one of the really fascinating parts of all of this is that the, the, the change of the internet. I mean, again, even 10 years ago when I went to Upper Lake, this is really e-commerce had not exploded in the same way. 
Uh, so I wanted to ask Gary and get his uh, sort of take on how much of this is really sort of, you know, the, the combination of the isolation of many tribes, uh, particularly in, in the Midwest, but in many areas, and how the Internet has opened opportunities and how much that's changed commerce and the relationship and, and how much it's impacted economic development. Because to me, the Internet seems so much a key part of this. Absolutely. And uh, first of all, I'd like to say um, my name is Gary Davis. I'm the president and CEO of the National Center for American Indian Enterprise Development. And um, uh, our organization was started by seven entrepreneurs uh, who believe that uh, Indian people uh, should have a seat at the table and Indian people should um, be owners, uh, should, uh, should expand uh, a, a very traditional practice of entrepreneurship and continue that uh, into today's world and, and look at how we can be self-sufficient, sustainable, uh, how we can look at uh, possibilities and innovate and, and uh, self-determine our future. And it's an honor to uh, serve an organization that uh, has that as its mandate to move forward. And uh, you know, when we look at all the different ways, uh, not through just this space, uh, but how through just uh, six, seven, eight weeks ago, uh, I found myself uh, sitting uh, with several other uh, American Indian uh, service providers, technical service providers, uh, not in this space, uh, but uh, standing up against the Department of Defense and the Defense Logistics Agency uh, because uh, we were uh, fighting over language in a SCA, uh, wherein after several years of operating a program that brings contracting opportunities from the Department of Defense to Indian country to grow entrepreneurs and to grow businesses in Indian country, all of a sudden, nothing had changed, but they wanted to reinterpret the language. Uh, so the wars still happen. The battle still wages. And um, this is a very important space to pay attention to. Um, we, as the National Center, have engaged the Internet and, and uh, the ability of accessing our people uh, across the United States, which is a different model than federal agencies have enacted, a brick-and-mortar approach to try to providing to try to provide technical services to Indian country. And oftentimes we see these programs fail time and time and time again. And now at the National Center, we've taken an approach to use the internet to effectuate change and opportunity and training and procurement, uh, uh, different opportunities that otherwise wouldn't have been there. Uh, it wouldn't have even been possible a few years ago because of the expense of building out website and infrastructure. But today, as those things are evolving and becoming more affordable, it allows us the ability to reach our people in a much more effective and efficient way. And uh, so we are part of this trend of moving to the Internet to better help our people and provide services to our people so that our next generations have the ability to learn, to gather information about hope. Uh, and by that, I mean to see American Indian business people succeeding. We have uh, the largest economic development conferences uh, in the world for Indian country, and we've been doing that for 30 years. And we gather in, in Las Vegas at, at the Mandalay Bay up to this point, and now Mirage, uh, 4,000 people from across the United States, from federal agencies, corporate America, uh, foreign countries, to come together and do business and um, every one of those trainings now are videotaped and put online so that people that can't make it to Las Vegas can literally log on and get that training, get that opportunity, because we're using our, uh, technology to, to help ourselves. So to go back to your, you know, sort of a, a laying the foundation, kind of a, a, a bigger picture stuff, e-commerce is the future. Uh, the world knows that. Amazon knows that. Google knows that. 
these are some of Facebook is partnered with us on our on our portal uh, online. Uh, they are a partner of ours, and uh, we we have to be involved, engaged, in a part of that discussion, in a part of that uh, world to be able to move forward. Our ancestors uh, were innovative. Uh, we don't get that in our history books. You weren't taught that in school. Uh, there's a place right now called Cahokia, right outside of St. Louis, Missouri, where it was the largest uh, epicenter of business and economic development uh, at that time in the world. And it wasn't just people that came from around what we now know as Missouri or Oklahoma. Uh, it was people that literally came uh, from as far away as South America, people that traveled the water to get to this place and trade and do business and live and move there. And uh, today we think that, that entrepreneurship and business is something new to us. It's probably one of the most traditional activities that we as a people know. And, and it kind of goes against the, the, the mainstay of what are Indians and, and, and unsophistication and, and uh, lack of knowledge and all of this. Uh, um, I have a word for it, but I'm trying to find a better word for it. Uh, <laughs> Bad communication uh, that has been uh, spread uh, to, to, to position a group of folks uh, to have leverage over another group of folks. Uh, and there's always been a motive to that. There's always been a motive to that. And, and we're sort of uh, very naive if we think that there hasn't been. The, 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 you know, we, we deal with good folks over uh, at different federal agencies that I really believe are trying to do the right thing. They're trying to do the good thing. But it's bureaucratic and it's tough. Uh, for them to effectuate any change. And, you know, you get into a situation where they're trying to do a good job, they're trying to make a difference, but there's a ceiling there. And we got to think about where did that start? The Bureau of Indian Affairs wasn't under Interior day one. It was under the Department of War. That's, the Bureau of Indian Affairs was created under the Department of War for what? To help Indians? And so I think we have to pay attention to our history and we have to understand how these folks are now facing a lot of challenges and, and, and obstacles because that wasn't originally the mandate of the Bureau to help Indians, uh, maybe to help Indians leave the earth, uh, but, but that's about it. And I think that we have to pay attention uh, to history. And, and uh, we, we're, you know, if you look at it, this world and history, we're not very far removed from those literal attacks on our people. And, and that's something that we have to pay attention to. And our people have never been about fighting and finding aggression first. Our people have always been open, compassionate. Uh, you know, you, you don't hear stories about the pilgrims and, and those guys got murdered the minute they got off the boat. You hear about something that still is practiced in this country to this day called Thanksgiving. And that was an act of compassion for a bunch of starving folks that came all the way across the water and didn't discover anything, but found us here by accident for most, for most of all of that. But I mean, you know, I mean, we all know this story, but do we know what did we do? We tried to help. Uh, and, and, and sometimes, you know, today in business, uh, you, you extend kindness. Sometimes folks take that for weakness. And I think that's been sort of the history of our people is extending kindness uh, and people misinterpreting it for weakness. And I think there's a certain point in time where you have to stand up and fight and you have to stand up and be bold and you have to stand up and express your sovereignty. And as much as we know that we understand sovereignty, you can probably walk the halls of Congress and get as many different definitions of, of sovereignty as there are members of Congress. And that's a problem. Because if you're then regulating agencies, then how are you having a mandate of a definition of sovereignty that everybody can adhere to, that can abide by and enforce by? And, and I think going back to e-commerce, the possibilities are limitless. And when we look at subsections of e-commerce, 
the danger here is the precedent setting. The danger here is, is we don't stand up now. You're going to stand up at some point in time because that's where the world's going. I mean, when we've got refrigerators on their way to where you don't even have to go to the grocery store anymore and you're going to have a drone drop off your groceries and, and that's, you know, I have a, a two-year-old son. That's his life. That's where he's headed. They're making that stuff right now. And if we're not visionary enough to lead, we will be, we'll be the reason for our own defeat in that space. And we can't let that happen. I mean, there's are some incredibly important points. And one of the things I think it's always you know, kind of important to keep in mind is we've often thought about you know, American history or we, we think about European history. I mean, certainly my grandparents left Italy to find a better life, and every time I'd ask, they missed it. They'd be like, no, we were dirt poor. Um, but there's a uniqueness to the tribal areas that you're not looking to stay. You're looking to keep the, the sanctity of the tribal land. And I, I think, to me, that connects with the Internet to allow you to keep the land intact. Uh, and again, you know, we heard the story about some of the tribes trying to get back their land. Uh, and I think that's an important connection of how the Internet could be such a bigger leverage here than its, than its other areas of commerce. Uh, I wanted to ask uh, Bill a question, and uh, as a former bank regulator, and I'll, I'll note as a side, you know, in my opinion, as an alumni of the Senate Banking Committee, one of the, one of the best chairs of the FDIC we had, uh, and uh, as much as I actually like Sheila Bear, I, I feel like I, there, if Bill had been there, things might have turned out a lot better. Um, but that said, you know, I, I do want to ask, you know, the bank regulator, you were, as a former bank regulator, you had the responsibility for safety and soundness, you have responsibility for consumer protection, uh, a lot of trade-offs, a lot of ba- things you have to balance uh, to make sure institutions don't get in trouble and don't get consumers in trouble. Uh, and for those of you who were missing, great dialogue, I think, in the movie from Bill, too, that to me really added a lot to it. So I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about you know, what are some of those trade-offs? Add a little bit to the discussions you raised. Uh, I love the dollar thirty-five example in the, in the movie that, that really kind of brought it home about how unworkable some of these things would be. I, I wondered what, where you were during all those years I was chairman of the FDIC, <laughs> sitting before hearings, and you never once said I was terrific. <laughs> as, you, as, as you know, the staff sit at the back of the dais oh, and we I keep see. our mouths <laughs> quiet and let the senators do the talking. Uh, it, it's, um, it, 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 this is really important stuff we're talking about because it, it's getting so hard in these remote locations and the reservations to, to do commerce. No, nobody's doing that anymore. I mean, everybody's inconvenienced if they have to drive five miles to a grocery store or four miles. And so we really have got to come to, to the population, not to, not to people coming to us as business people. And we've got to, uh, we've got to reach out and, and pull people in, in in a convenient way. And that's what, that's what this is all about. Because I don't see how you can sit in the middle of nowhere and and do commerce uh, unless you find a way to make it really convenient. Uh, my, you know, I, my family gets upset if they have to drive to you know a mile to the grocery store. <laughs> and, and I mean that's not where that's not where it's going. It's all coming to us. And uh, so I think that's that's one of the reasons why I feel so strongly about this. That you know, it's, it's been interesting to me, sort of you know, post financial crisis how much emphasis this issue has gotten. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier, I worked on Fannie Mae. It's, it's, and it's interesting that the Dodd-Frank Act literally has more to, 
more regulation of paid-in installment lending than it does of Fannie Mae. Yet, I have yet to read anybody who really sees that as a connection to the crisis. I mean, is, if, put yourself back in that bank regulator seat. Is this the first thing you would be emphasizing, worried about in terms of risk to the overall system? No. It's, I mean, it's not, a, it's not a very big risk to the system at all. And, and whatever, whatever problems there are, they can be, they can be fixed There's through proper regulation. Uh, I, I, I think the answer here is clearly more competition, not less. And, uh, there's no way that you're going to get to a, a more competitive marketplace, a more uh, efficient marketplace, a more fair marketplace, a better priced marketplace. And you're not going to get to any of those things if you don't have lots of competitors. Now, it's true you do need to, to have some standards about what those competitors should be allowed to do and what they shouldn't be allowed to do and what disclosures they make and everything else. So you do have that kind of re regulation needs to go on. And, and obviously, if you feel, see somebody that doesn't know what they're doing and they're stealing, you, you, you have, the regulators have to come down with that on them. And I don't know why that wouldn't be a, an Indian regulator as opposed to somebody sitting in Washington. I mean... Uh, we, we've always felt that taking the regulation closer to the people is going to get it done better. That's, that's been a basic principle, and I don't know why we can't we, we can't and shouldn't be doing that here. I think we should. I I don't know why this is something that we need to have some some uh, fancy person from <laughs> Chicago to go out to the reservation and decide whether the Indians know how to regulate their commerce. I don't, I, I don't understand that. Uh, it, and now, if there's something wrong and they need to get it fixed, I, I suspect they'd be the first people to want it fixed. <laughs> and, and, and it can be a cooperative thing, but I, I, I don't know why we're so upset about, about this, this kind of lending that's going on. Clearly, 70% of the people in the United States are, are under, or 70 million people, excuse me, are underbanked. That's about a third of our population, underbanked or not banked at all. How can we sit here and say everything's okay? We don't want any more competitors. You don't, you don't have any competitors now. It's, it, it's, this is a very inefficient marketplace. And, 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 and it's very clear that the, the major financial institutions have said, we can't serve the people who need it. We can't serve the poor. They've said, I mean... You don't have to say it out loud, but it's clearly what they've said by not showing up. And and I, I'm not blaming them. I don't, I don't know what's I don't know what's driving it. I, actually, I do. There's a, there's a lot of government that's driving it. But but um, I mean, but the answer is not to make it even harder for people to come in and do business. It's, it's, it's to be get easy, make it easier to get in and do business. Don't make it so tough. Uh, bring in more competitors, not fewer, and and these problems will fix themselves. I think that's a point that's that's often lost, and I'll, I'll note, you know, the New York Fed did a study a number of years ago that said the, the more lenders you have in a community, the lower the price for consumers. Shocker, Econ 101 works. Unfortunately, I feel like I have to teach it every day in Washington, but uh, as I had to do when I was on Capitol Hill. Um, but, you know, I mean, there are a lot of different sides of this, and, and first I want to want to commend to anybody who hasn't read Chico's piece from March. is a really great place to start his piece in the Post really talk about multiple sides of this. And so, you know, we did see a number of consumers talked about who've clearly, you know, run in a tough patch. You know, we didn't really talk about um, the consumers that roll over and do multiple loans. Um, and so I thought Chico's piece was really balanced. I thought he gave you a lot of the different sides of it. And so I want to give him a chance to talk about it, but I also want to start him with, um, he did really what I, what I think is a really good, I don't want to say trick, maybe tools of the trade and journalism, which is to kind of end with your piece with a really good question 
that you don't actually answer? Are you out <laughs> there? So I'm going to turn it around on Chick a little bit and, and, and try to get him to answer his own question, which was the end of the piece was this question about, you know, essentially, does it matter for a particular service um, who benefits from it? So, you know, there's a little bit of bank bashing in the film, and that's fine. I, I do my share of bank bashing sometimes, and I do my share of bank praising when they do the right thing. Um, but a lot of the argument here is that, you know, should there be a different standard for tribal lending because the tribes benefit in a way that, you know, some Wall Street firm is not? Uh, and so I want to throw that the question kind of to, to you to sort of start to talk about your piece a little bit. Sure, and I'll just give a little bit of background because I'm guessing that only a small fraction has read that story. Um, this was this was a sort of a project I've been working on for over the course of uh, maybe six months, just a series of stories about the way that uh, credit credit strapped consumers were making decisions and facing various obstacles, forks in the road. Absolutely, the highlight of that period was going out to one of the um, reservations that was shown in this documentary was the Lackview Desert Tribe in the like the snowiest place in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. <laughs> I think it was negative 20 degrees when I went there, and that was probably the nicest day of the winter. So, <laughs> what you what I found was indeed this group that had almost no economic opportunity other than a, a very struggling and kind of sad casino. And obviously, as as has been mentioned, there's this large group of consumers that. Um, is underserved by banks. So that's sort of these, these two things that fit into the business. But I think you also have to acknowledge that the area is grayer than, than we've sort of been saying so far. Um, not every scenario that, that begins with a borrower looking for money ends with him or her paying $15 in fees. In fact, most don't. And even the data of this tribe, which I finally wrangled, you know, 40% of the borrowers default. And many more end up paying thousands of dollars in fees, starting with, say, a $1,000 loan. This is how they make their money. If 40% of the people are defaulting, you need that alternative scenario in order to be viable. It's not an easy business, and it can be an ugly business. So even the installment loan, in, though it has some key differences with the payday loan, um, is not always a good situation for the borrower. You also have to acknowledge that the tribal regulation gives consumers less recourse. They're basically appealing if they have a complaint to the same entity that initiated the loan. That could be a potential problem. Um, and then separate from, I think, a lot of the Native Americans here, there are some tribes that have gotten into this um, where the, most of the revenue is not going back to them, where it's just some hedge fund sort of operating behind a curtain and extracting the revenue by placing a mailing address on a tribal property. So you have some really tough problems. You also have the history of Native American tribes that have been victimized by lending. Um, just do Google map search for like the Navajo tribe and you'll find a ring of payday lending stores right outside, just waiting. So the fascinating part to me is that these tribes, knowing all of these problems, knowing the potential uh, you know, traps that they could fall into, are still doing it. And they definitely have their reasons that I think have been well covered here. So, to me, there's so much complexity that you really have to be able to acknowledge. Now, for the question about whether it should matter who's benefiting, I tried to think about that a lot. And I think the answer is no, only because I can't imagine a scenario where regulators would be able to say, well, these guys are doing it for the right reasons and these aren't. Um, in some of my more recent travels, I've been in places that are almost as impoverished as 
some Indian tribes like the Mississippi Delta. And trust me, there you see every little like, cash America doing its thing. And the people that are benefiting are indeed employees that are making $28,000 a year. Just feel sympathetic for them. Um, but what I think might be worth addressing is that maybe there are some consumers to whom it does matter. They think, OK, I'm a little uneasy about this. I need a loan. And these people here, I feel like they're doing it for a good cause or they're doing it to benefit a community that I'm going to care about, and you give them your business. I think that that's one scenario where maybe tribes that are in the lending game might even um, benefit from being more open about their tribal affiliation and the way that the revenue is being used. All right, all right, all right that was a great. Uh, what we're going to do is take a few questions from the audience. So let me go up to the podium. Um, I will start off by emphasizing, please have your question actually in the form of a question. Always helps. Uh, and if you have it directed toward a particular uh, panelist, you can do that too. Uh, and so we're going to have microphones around the room very soon. Uh, my interns are finding them now. Um, but while my interns are finding the microphones, let's see if anybody wants to, any of my panelists want to respond to what each other have said. We're all shy today. Gary? Um. <clears throat> You know, let me let me just say that um, I think context is everything, and uh, in, in most things it is. Um, uh, if you don't have the history, if you don't understand the situation fully, uh, it's easy to make assumptions. And um, yesterday, uh, for the first time in what I understand ever, uh, we. Uh, moved forward affirmatively to stand in front of the U.S. Capitol and to uh, have our member of Congress uh, support that to affirm a new day now for economic development. And uh, as we were standing up there making those uh, affirmative statements and joining together to move forward uh, to an, a day that ended up on the Hill uh, with 13 members of Congress uh, to, to speak about the, the need in Indian country and, and and, and, and tribes should be able to do what tribes want to do, and, <laughs> and tribes should have the self-determined uh, right to do these things and are sovereign. Uh, in all of this, which is really at the essence of what we're talking about here, the, the, uh, the act of doing that, um, and, and really what I guess in, in, in all of the, the, the takeaway that I, that I see in this is, is really comes down to a moral question. Are we approving of people doing this versus do they have the right to do it? And I think when you get into that conversation, that's a different conversation. That's not the, the core conversation. And it's easy to transfer over into that discussion when you get off topic and you're talking about something else. Because really, honestly, we could talk about other things that Indian country is doing 24 hours a day, seven days a week across the country that could be subject to that same moral argument. That's true. Well, um, raise your hand if you have a question. Right here in the front. Hi, uh, John Swallow, Arlington, Virginia, who's on. Um, I'm curious, uh, is there any, comp any uh, lobbying against Indian tribes doing this from the payday lender types? And how big is, uh, how far, or how much, how much of Indian tribes engaged in this, so f in this, this business so far? Yeah. Gary, do we know how many uh, tribes how are? Is it? How, 
You know, I think anything that Indian country decides to do, you're always going to get immediate and direct uh, uh, pushback from all parties that, that are just upset that for somehow they think Indian country is getting an unfair advantage and a leg up. And, and again, there, with no qualifying that, with no backstory, with no context, uh, those wars get waged on all fronts. Um, I guess what I was going to get to, and, all, and, 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 I, and I think that we should maybe defer to more specific numbers uh, from the good folks at the Native American Financial Services Association uh, who wake up and go to sleep with this every single day uh, to make those decisions and, and, and come up with those numbers and, and know those folks. Um, I guess my point that I was leading to right there is, is we're standing there and, and, and all intentions to move economic development forward. Uh, a group of young school children was coming back because we did bring our culture. We had our drum up there, uh, and we did bring some folks that I've known for a long, long time that really uh, are, are legacy uh, singers in, in Indian country. And um, as we had the, the beauty of our regalia there represented, um, I was listening to Congressman Thompson speak, and I heard uh, children behind us popping their mouth and war hooping and, and all of that good stuff. And, and it inspired me to make some remarks to that as hopefully their teachers took some things from what I said after that uh, to go back to the classroom and help them understand better uh, where we are as a people. What we go through in Indian country is unlike anything that still goes on in 2015 with any other group of people. I don't care about the impoverished nature of it. It's not the same. Uh, we have to understand that and address that single fact first. And uh, I, I saw uh, John Stossel did an, uh, a piece one time and couldn't understand how come Indians had uh, health care and how Indians had preferential treatment of any sort. And there's a whole piece that's been cut out purposefully to make sure that we don't have the whole story because then it's a whole lot easier to sell this other stuff and get the, the sway of, of, of media and the sway of everybody else against things without any of the backstory. And the backstory is intrinsically important because the, the, the laws that have been made are all uh, a piece of that. And, and the things that we've done leading up to this moment, and great leaders who came here, uh, Kicking Bear, who we have right outside of Armini Shoreham, uh, who came here to fight for some of the same things a hundred and some years ago that we're fighting for right now, Unless we stand firm, the conversation is going to continue to be the same. And, and again, I said I have a two-year-old, and I have a four-year-old, and I have a 16-year-old, so we got one in every weight division. Um, <laughs> you know, I want it to be better for them. I want them to be able to self-determine their future. I want them, if one day they decide to lead uh, my nation, which is one of the largest nations in this uh, United States of America, that they have the ability to move forward sovereignty by its truest definition. And I think that's what we're all really trying to do here. And how can we work together? I mean, we're about opening up economic development and free trade zones and driving jobs to the reservation so that we don't just benefit Indian country. We benefit other people and provide jobs and services. But when you're going through the bureaucracy and you can't do those things, so when you're talking about other forms of economic development, we act like we have choices sometimes as to whether or not we want to do those things. And we just absolutely don't. It's not that easy. And sometimes economic development opportunities leave when we have to take it out of our hands and put it into the hands of bureaucracy. And that's what we're trying to get around is self-determining our future. And every time it seems like we do that, there's a, a, a good bunch of folks that want to make sure that that, that doesn't happen. You know, I'll add on the in initial question. I mean, my familiarity was certainly with Washington, D.C. and certainly a lot of these debates uh, going in the state capitals. But um, my impression is the non-tribal installment and payday lenders Sure, they see it as competitors, but they're not behind. They, they see themselves largely in the same boat. 
as being under attack. So I don't, they certainly distinguish themselves, but uh, certainly nothing I've seen suggests that the attacks on tribal land are coming from their competitors. Again, it seems like they're all in the same boat and are thinking that way about it. So I think we have time for one more quick question before I hit the bar. Um, uh, right over here in the front. Hi, uh, Wilson Pipestem. I'm a citizen of the Oto, Missouri tribe. To the reporter, all the problems that you mentioned, aren't those solved by Chairman Isaac's uh, view that competition will make the difference? So you mentioned, I think, that some of the fees and, and uh, the direct appeal back to the entity making the loan, that sort of thing, those, those are all solved by competition, I believe, right? I, I do not have the foresight to know what would happen with that. Um, I, would, I would say that that's certainly a possibility. Some sort of regulation could also solve it. I don't really know what the solution is, whether proliferation of options is gonna automatically reduce interest rates or APR. Um, the one takeaway that I do think surprises some people who, who aren't familiar is that these companies, even with the, with the, the triple digit interest rates aren't operating at lucrative margins. As you often hear from people, they'll say, well, if this, was, if this was such a great business, everybody would be in it. It's a hard business with a lot of unpredictable parts. So there's at least a chance, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this, but there's at least a chance that the level of interest rates that we're seeing right now is there not because of lack of competition, but because that this is what companies or tribes need in order to be profitable, especially given the sort of uncertain background uh, of upcoming regulation. Well, Bill, I don't know if you wanted to. Sure, uh, I, I think that, um, I think to, it, that we, we can see all we need to see on this when we look at four large banks, well, two of them, are, three of them are re regional banks and one's a, a large bank. The four large banks were engaged in a thing close to payday lending. I mean, they called it something else, but it was payday lending. Um, and, and the four banks were Wells Fargo, uh, Fifth Third, which is a bank I was chairman of until a year ago, uh, aged out, I'm an old man now, and, uh, and uh, Regions, and who was the fourth? Uh, the fourth oh, U.S. Bank Corp. Now, there's, there's four really good banks. And the regulators came to those four banks and said, get out of the business get out of that business. And what, it was a payday lending kind of thing. It, it, was, a, it was in a, a checking account is all. They, they, they deposited money into a checking account instead of handing them a, a payday. And, and so the, the customers were able to, to manage these, these checking accounts and get, get liquidity for their immediate needs. And then they had to give the money back in a couple weeks uh, with interest. And it was far cheaper than almost any payday lending I've heard of, payday loan I've heard of. And the regulators told all four of them to get out. Why? I have no clue. Except that the regulators have this thing about payday lending. There must be something wrong with it. And, and they took four highly reputable banks who were offering it much cheaper than a typical pay, pay, payday loan to their customers. And, and they, they loved being in the business. And the regulators forced them to shut it down and get out. And, and none of them is still back in. Well, Wells Fargo didn't, didn't get out entirely, but the others pretty much got out, and, they, and, and, and the regulators haven't let them back in. And I, I guess what I'm telling you, I don't see any rationale for why we're doing what we're doing. 
Um, and, and there are a lot of bank products that are far more expensive than, than payday loans. Um, for example, check cashing fees that can be very abusive. And, and there are lots of things like that that you go into a bank and get, and, and there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot of money being spent. Uh, and and uh, uh, bounce checks or uh, mm. insufficient, over, insufficient fund checks. There's a lot of abuses going on, or at least very high prices. And I think the only way to get rid of it is more competition, more competition. I'm not saying you can't try to do regulation, but that, that's it. We've, had, we've had this stuff for a long time, and it isn't getting regulated very well and probably never will. And so let's get more competitors in there. Let's let more people get in, like Wells Fargo and Regions, instead of kicking the ones that are in out. Let's get more in. Let's, let's get more competition. And, and, uh, and if that doesn't work, get more competitors. In other words, if you can't get enough competition with inside one industry, bring some other industries in. Get, get the marketplace working. And I think, I think we can solve these problems. We can certainly make it a lot better. This, this, the, these these uh, the, people, 70 million people can't gain access to an adequate amount of credit. And the prices are, are, well, are well overwhelmingly high. And I don't, know why, I don't know why it's even controversial. I don't know why regulators aren't saying, why don't they hold a, a, a conference right now? How do we get more people doing this stuff so the prices will go down? That, that ought to be the theme of the concert. I mean, that's the real tension behind that. I mean, I mean, Chico raises what I think are some very important points, especially in his, in his piece. And the frustration, I think, is often that the approach you saw at the FDIC with these four banks, the approach you see at the CPB, really tends to be about whether this product should exist at all, not about how do you do it responsibly. I, I will say, I think this is the first time we've had uh, Chico here. I hope it's the first of many. So if I get him over here a few more times, I hope we can get that Cato uh, competition works <laughs> mindset, uh, you know, ingrained in him. But uh, we're going to work on that. Um, I want to thank uh, all of our panelists. Uh, I want to thank all of you for coming, uh, and especially for those of you, this is the first time you've been to Cato, uh, and welcome you out to the Winter Garden for a drink. Thank you.